This is SMDC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 17 of The High Ground, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's official podcast. I'm Ronald Bailey, a.k.a. Beetle. It's August 2023, and we're pleased to bring you a very special episode in which the SMDC Public Affairs team had the opportunity to engage with Dr. Keith Krapples, a member of the Senior Executive Service. Dr. Krapples is the director of SMDC's Technical Center, one of the command's four major subordinate elements. Although he's only been with the command for a few months, he's no stranger to DOD science and technology enterprise. With his vast experience, he's been able to hit the ground running, as they say, to push the Technical Center and its projects supporting space, missile defense, and high-altitude equities forward toward the future, as we'll soon find out. In an attempt to learn a little more about him, we opened up by asking him how he came to be selected for the position and his initial impression of the command. So I was running the Sensors and Electronics Directorate at the uh, Army Research Lab about two and a half years ago. And I'd been doing that for four years. And a great group of folks there. Very capable, doing leading-edge research, world-leading-edge research. And somebody from USD Arnie talked me into taking a position there as the director for C5 ISR and Electronic Order, which is right up my alley. As I'm, I'm a sensors and countermeasures kind of guy. That's uh, where my technical expertise is. And so I took that job. I now consider that I have been paroled from my sentence to the Pentagon. And uh, the SMDTC position opened up and advertised first. And I jumped right on that. And uh, they were expeditious at conducting the interview. And to be fair, I was biased towards AVMIC and SMDTC because I'm from Memphis. That's where my, my mom lives. And I've, this is the first time in my adult life that I've lived close enough to Memphis that I can drive home and visit my mom on the weekend. So I was all over uh, applying this. It was great mission space, lots of good technical work. Of course, I didn't know until I got here that this was the best organization to work for in the Army. You know, you know that, that sign out front was like, wow, look at that. Oh, so I made the right decision. Through a glance at Dr. Krapel's bio, we learned he's actually a former Navy officer and aviator. A sailor that deeply embedded in the Army might seem a little suspect. So as a litmus test, we ask him point blank where his loyalties lie through one critical question. Do you root for Navy during the Army-Navy game? No, absolutely not. I have historically rooted for Army. So, um, yeah, you go back uh, all the way to 1980. I started in the Army. I have not changed my allegiance when it comes to Army-Navy despite having spent, uh, you know, 20, 28 years uh, as a Navy guy, I still root for Army when it comes to Army-Navy. In a couple engagements since becoming director, we noticed how Dr. Krapples talked about how exciting it is to be working DOD and Army science and technology efforts right now. We asked him to expand on that a little by starting with a broader historical context, then focusing down on how that applies to air and missile defense. Oh, wow, this is a great time to be a researcher in the Army. Um, The last time the the Army wanted new capability based on new technology this much was in the 1970s, right? At the time, Abrams, Bradley, Apache, Blackhawk, Patriot, 
were all new capabilities, right? Um, for some reason, the Army calls that the Big Five, and they always leave off uh, Gimlers and Atacams, you know, so I would call it the Big Six. Uh, but all that stuff came out, you know, was in R&D in the 70s. Uh, President Reagan bought it in the 80s, and we showed off most of it in Desert Storm, right? Then subsequently, of course, in, in uh, Iraqi freedom and in Afghanistan. And then we got bogged down in the global war on terror, and there wasn't a lot of pull for new capability. Uh, the future combat system went, effort went by the wayside as we focused on, on uh, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. And now the Army pokes its head back up and goes, man, we need to catch up. Then SEC Army uh, Esper, uh, very savvy with how to talk to the folks on the Hill and gain the uh, support on the Hill for, for modernization. So as he planned it out, spend that first five years funding modernization with uh, RDT&E dollars. And they laid out the big six plus two Army modernization priorities, which result in 30 some odd programs uh, to modernize the Army. And, and that really is the first instantiation of technology, right? The Army saying, give me. We had filled the technology toolbox with a lot of options. And the Army was able to reach in and commence prototyping but we're not gonna achieve the desired end state in just this one round of modernization. The desired end state is capability overmatch in all the war fighting domains. Air and missile defense is one of those areas where we're gonna get better, right? You can look at uh, the lower tier air and missile defense sensor, LTAMS. That is a huge improvement from a radar standpoint over what Patriot radar currently is. Current Patriot radar is a passive electronically scanned array and it only sees 120 degrees and it's fixed. It doesn't rotate. So you have to have three batteries to cover 360 degrees. LTAMS is an active electronically scanned array uh, based technology. Digital at every element means it can dynamically form beams and or change frequencies on a pulse to pulse basis. That's a huge capability step forward, but it doesn't get us to capability overmatch. Right? It really just kind of catches uh, us up with everybody else. And the air and missile defense side has been underinvested because they've been over-deployed. Right? Patriot batteries are the most deployed uh, operational units, tactical units uh, in the Army. So modernization, so to speak, for air and missile defense fell behind. So we're going to work in our S&T, our 6.2 and 6.3, that's Applied Research and Advanced Technology Development uh, in the in the DOD budgeting codes, we're gonna work on those next generation of technologies that get us to overmatch. This first round for air and missile defense gets us to the best you can build today, right? But what do we want uh, for overmatch? That's the things that we're gonna work in the S&T. Next, we turn to the conversation to the future of SMDC science and technology work by asking where the requirements come from. Are they generated outside SMDC or from within, such as the SMDC Center of Excellence? So it's a little bit of both, right? So this this is unique, the, uh, the tech center and in SMDC, in that the requirements generators are literally on the same floor as I am, right? So they're my next door neighbors. Uh, when I worked at C5 ISR Center or at the Army Research Lab. All the requirements generation folks were down in Virginia, right? At what was Tradoc Arctic, what became AFC Futures, FCC, Futures and Concept Center, right? 
what our requirements riders are right there in the Army capability managers for space and high altitude and for uh, missile defense. So those guys and gals, great soldiers, but not necessarily technology experts. So it's my job to help make them aware of what the technology opportunities are. Because if we base a new capability on a, an entirely different architecture or technology than what current capability is based on, then the adversary's investment countering that capability is obsolete and wasted. Uh, so those are some of the things that we would work. Lieutenant General Carbler has just recently talked about the evolution from missile defense to missile defeat. Well, that means we're not just working interceptors in the terminal uh, uh, phase of the engagement, but everything to the left of that, right? Now, to some extent, SMDC was the only organization kind of really doing that because all the, the GBIs in Alaska and California that are operated by our soldiers are mid-phase uh, interceptors as opposed to terminal defense. But it opens up all the rest of that space in the Indo-PACOM AOR between the units that fire the munitions, all the flight time to get to, say, Guam. If you can disrupt or break that uh, engagement chain further away from you, it's always better, right? So those classic electronic warfare Ds that uh, General Carbler was talking about, deny, delay, deceive, degrade, all of those things done to the left are things that the Army really wasn't doing in order to defend itself. And so now we have this new, broader mission set. Um, and that's part of his roles and responsibilities under Commander U.S. Spacecom, right? Because they have moved the Integrated Missile Defense Mission out of uh, STRATCOM and over to Spacecom. And so under the new Unified Command Plan, which came out in 22, um, those roles and responsibilities now belong underneath Spacecom, largely because uh, Spacecom owns all those, owns and operates all those space-based sensors that give us the global global missile warning, right? We followed this by asking about the type of science and technology work being done that excites him, not only across the DOD government and contractor enterprise, but right here at SMDC's technical center. There's a lot of opportunity to do leading edge research here and create that capability that will result in our soldiers and our joint warfighting force having capability overmatch. We can directly influence that. Uh, if you go to work for, say, Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman, you can do good technical work, but you're only going to work one project at a time, a small slice of the mission space, right? Here, we have a lot of areas we can work on, and you can work multiple projects at once. I always find it way more exciting to be able to do multiple things at once. And our young engineers and scientists here can actually start from scratch in some of these areas. So just next year, uh, we get a, an applied research line for quantum-based sensing. Totally new area. In a couple of years, we'll get a, an applied technology development line for the results of that quantum-based sensing. And in the near term, for the Army at least, that's likely to be inertial measurement unit. You can... Uh, beat the noise floor, so to speak, that you see in electronic or RF systems doing quantum-based sensing systems. And it holds the potential to make inertial measurement units 
that could be strategic grade. Right now, in the U.S. DOD, only those platforms that are strategic platforms, that is, the ballistic missile submarines and the weapons that they use, the Air Force weapons, only those weapons have strategic grade inertial measurement units. Now, what does that really mean for us? Well, right now, most of our tactical systems and our, say, theater-level systems use either tactical or nav-grade inertial measurement systems. That means the navigation needs update, and we use GPS today, mostly. And GPS is easily interfered with, right? If we get to strategic grade in small form factor, looks solid state, looks kind of like a chip, right? All you need to know is where you are when you shoot, and the munition will get to the intended target without needing an update. That's a huge improvement. Next, we ask if the science and technology efforts of today, leading to capabilities in the next few decades, would have the same impact the Big Five of the 1970s and 1980s had on warfare at the turn of the 20th century. Will we enjoy the same type of dominance in the 2030s and 2040s? Well, that's a really good question. I certainly hope so. We need to move faster than our adversaries. And it, it doesn't mean that we can actually uh, achieve overmatch all the time, everywhere. In some cases, superiority is good enough to accomplish the mission, right? Dominance isn't necessary. In the Indo-PACOM AOR, we are unlikely, given the vast nature of the theater and the long ranges, we're unlikely to be able to achieve dominance or dominance in, in any domain all the time. Uh, but if we can allocate our resources, plan and execute, such a way that we achieve superiority in the domains uh, as we need it to accomplish the mission, then, then that may be sufficient. I would say in the air and missile defense arena, we're a little unique. Most of the offensive side of the house, superiority is good enough. I need to beat up the bad guy just enough to make sure I can get in, execute an attack, and then leave. In the integrated air and missile defense domain, uh, I'm protecting our ground assets or our at-sea assets, and I need to do that 24-7, 365. So I actually do need dominance in order to be credible as a deterrent. Um, if you look right now, we don't actually have enough resources in air and missile defense to be credible as a strategic level deterrent, you know, to de deter aggression. Now, you can look tactically in the Ukraine and see that our air defense weapons and effectors that we have transferred to the Ukraine are highly effective. We just don't have enough for it to be a deterrent. So we could deploy enough to protect assets, but it wouldn't deter conflict necessarily, right? So how do we get to where we can achieve deterrence? That's the actual role of our warfighting capability. We don't create that capability so we can go to war. We create the capability so we prevent war. So that's a challenge going forward. How do we do that? Because um, the air and missile defense side has been focused on succeeding tactically defending places. And they have, right, in the Middle East. Uh, been a lot of examples uh, all the way from the scale of, of Patriot on down to defending uh, forward bases. Uh, against rockets, artillery, and mortar, right? We still need to build new capability uh, to defeat the adversary's new capabilities, but we also have to build that capacity. And then we have to let the adversary know that 
Yeah, we're way more capable than you are. Um, so you won't necessarily succeed at your objectives and then that creates that deterrent effect. Although future capabilities were touched upon earlier, we wanted to address the elephant in the room, Space Force and the Space Development Agency. We asked if those entities affected the type of science and technology research SMDC has been doing over the past couple of years to perhaps move on to work that would better support Army-centric capabilities and missions, those problem sets unique to the Army. So as the CG talked about the evolution from missile defense to missile defeat, that gives, that gives me and my engineers a hunting license to go pursue those new, new technologies. The same sort of thing with the evolution of our space and high altitude efforts from doing small satellites uh, in space, that mission has now uh, moved to Space Development Agency and Space Force. But the payloads uh, and those sensors, the integration of that capability has changed in the Army to the high altitude side. So we have, have that hunting license to pursue the sorts of technologies that we had done before for small sats in LEO and, and evolve that into payloads that can go on high altitude platforms. The, the Army's space, so to speak, tongue-in-cheek, is everything 100 kilometers and below in altitude. 100 kilometers and above belongs to, to Space Force and Space Command in terms of the platforms and flying there. And so notionally, at least, we're not developing those satellites anymore. The Army is now at the cusp of fielding high-energy laser systems to combat forces. More than just technology demonstration models, these prototypes are now in the hands of select units to operate with the maneuver forces. So what have we learned from these first-generation high-energy laser weapons that the SMDC science and technology teams in the technical center are using for the next generation of high-energy laser weapons? Well, I'd say we have, we have a number of different areas uh, where we've got really, really strong teams. And uh, the one that's most visible right now today if, if you're talking about one of our research areas and the research team, is probably the laser-directed energy area. Richto's overseeing prototyping for directed energy for maneuver uh, short-range air defense and for indirect fires protection capability. You know, that's 50 kilowatt and 300 kilowatt CW lasers, continuous wave lasers to, to burn stuff out of the sky. They are building those prototypes. That's with what was current state-of-the-art four years ago. And we know, as technologists, that that's not really what you want in a soldier system. They're very complex laser systems with lots of lasers to get to those big numbers in terms of uh, uh, power and energy out. So we have a number of S&T efforts to make less complex, easier to make, easier to maintain systems down the road. So with those prototypes, the Army will take them into the range and they will start showing the value of laser-directed energy in the battlefield, but they will also start looking at how practical is it today and what should the next generation of laser-directed energy look like. So it's, it's well used today in, in various forward AORs protecting fixed sites where you have infrastructure to tie it into, but for maneuver units, that's kind of a, kind of a tougher problem. So we've got the first cut at it, but if you looked at things like, uh, say, uh, the biggest R&D program in World War II, it was the B-29. 
We deployed early B-29s and the engines caught fire all the time and aircrew died, right? We don't want that sort of thing happen. We want to go fast, but we need to make it better. So you have to make it so that the soldiers can maintain it and it's reliable uh, so that the systems are available. And then you have to make it so that the Army can afford enough systems. Right now, we're, we're a little behind in those areas, but we've got the, the laser-based systems to take to the range, to give to soldiers, and have them start developing tactics, techniques, and procedures, and writing out the list of, hey, here's all the things that need to be improved. And so we've gotten, we in the RICTO, uh, have gotten good feedback uh, from the soldier touch points and the units that have those uh, laser systems on what to do. And currently in the tech center, our laser DE folks are working on a number of efforts to improve the laser sources and the optical trains. And that's not just to improve the performance, but also those other things, the cost, the reliability, the maintainability. We finished our conversation with Dr. Krapples on a more serious note, to which he responded in kind, but also positively. Does the work performed by the soldiers, civilians, and contractors in the SMDC Technical Center really matter? Will it actually save lives in the future? Absolutely. One of the great things about here in SMDC Tech Center is we're, we belong to an Army command. We have a commanding general. He has not just S&T dollars, research development dollars, test and evaluation dollars, and the, the center of excellence doing the schoolhouse and the requirements generation. He also has operational units. So our folks get to see soldiers to a degree that when I worked at the Army Research Lab, I only had one soldier in my organization. Instead, here, I have a couple dozen soldiers Right? And the organization has over a thousand soldiers. So we see soldiers and our impact on what soldiers can do directly all the time. If we get to capability overmatch, that results in less loss on our side as air and missile defenders, right? Uh, that's fundamental there. If we achieve overmatch, then less US guys and gals die. I mean, it doesn't matter whether or not we're defending an Air Force base or a Navy base or an allies infrastructure forward deployed, right? Which is quite a bit of the forward deployed right now is, is allies defense, right? So all of that results in the saving of lives, though ultimately, as, a, as I mentioned before, our goal is to create enough overmatch that we deter our adversaries and then nobody loses their lives. From all of us here at the High Ground Studio and SMDC soldiers and civilians across the globe, we want to thank Dr. Keith Krapples for sharing his experiences and thoughts with us and for his dedicated service to the Army and the nation. To learn more about SMDC's exciting missions, units, and people across the world, check out our social media or webpage at www.smdc.army.mil. For the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, I'm Ronald Bailey.